I try to read through the Psalms regularly. I have a little method of calculating the day of the month, the month of the year to tell me which song, Psalm to read. I try to read through the Psalms twice a year. The Psalms are just powerful in our lives. They, they crystallize true Christian experience. Um, you know, the Bible is inspired. Every, every word, every letter, every yod, every tittle, as Jesus says. Um, and some, some parts of the Bible are there to give us the history of redemption. Some parts of the Bible are there to sing the songs of Zion. And these are the Psalms, sings in our heart. Here we have an inspired record of how a godly person will respond. Full of all the varied, I don't know, experiences of the Christian life. When people try to have a canned approach to the Christian life, you just get them to try to read the Psalms. There's no canned approach. All there is is walking with God every day and he, uh, he directs our steps, as Proverbs says. Psalm 3, let's read it. It's always important to read the headings if you have them in your Bible. This is a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And that history that is behind this psalm and 14 psalms altogether. This is one of 14 psalms about this specific period in the life of David. He fled from Absalom, his son, 2 Samuel chapter 15 and through 18, where Absalom had rebelled, gathered the nation together, a lot of people together to rebel against David. So that's sort of the background. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. O Lord, how are my adversaries increased? Verse 1, Psalm 3, 1. How many they are that rise up against me. How many there are that say of my soul, there's no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're the glory and the lifter of my head. I cry unto the Lord with my voice and he answers me out of his holy hill. I laid me down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000 of the people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies upon the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the wicked. Victory belongs unto the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. So why don't we pray and just ask God to be with, uh, with us. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just think of our lives, how for so much of our life, at least early on, you called upon us to come and be with you. And we refused until one day, Lord, one period in our life, you started exercising your grace and started truly drawing us unto yourself. And Lord, you have brought us to be with you. And uh, what a blessing that is. What a privilege. What a joy. But Lord, just to think of these words that you are with us. The God of the universe who made all things, we, you put these stars, this endless uh, set of galaxies and stars out there cannot ever be numbered as far as we can tell. Just going off into a distance, we can't see the end of it no matter what technology we have. Lord, you put all that out there just to display to us personally, each one of us, how great and magnificent you are. So, Lord, it's just so awesome that you are with us personally. 
You think of Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of him? Who are we that, Lord, you would come and be with us? The true and living God, who is a God of light and love, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in your entire being, and everything you are, everything you have. And Lord, you are with us, and we thank you for it. Lord, as we read this psalm this morning, just a small little psalm of David, small but pithy, small but potent, Lord, just pray that you would speak to our hearts, reorient our lives again for this week, give us a reset that we belong to you, that like David, we can trust in you and call upon you, um, and that, Lord, you are adequate for our lives, no matter what the circumstance. We ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now, the background, the background we can find in 2 Samuel, and let's really just read it quickly rather than me trying to explain it. It'll be just easier to look at it. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Keep your fingers there, of course, over in Psalm 3. You may remember that David earlier on had committed adultery Bathsheba. That was bad enough, but he tried to cover it up with murder, not just of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, but with other men that were with Uriah. You remember that uh, there was a battle and Uriah, who was a good soldier, a good man, a faithful, a faithful man, a, faith, a man faithful to David as king, that David told his generals, say, hey, let, let Uriah go up into the battle, put him in the heat, let him go up against this really hard place in the wall with his men, and then you withdraw. And when that happened, the, Uriah and his, his fellow soldiers were, were killed. It was... It was an organized murder. It took a year for David to battle with his conscience, or almost a year to battle with his conscience over that until finally God came, sent Nathan the prophet to David and said, you are the man. You're the man. And from that we have many psalms. They're called penitential psalms. This sort of occurs as part of that. But it's not really a penitential psalm. And God said, your sin is covered. I've forgiven your sins. David, by the law, should have been put to death. That was the sentence. But God forgave his sin. He was not put to death. It's a good thing he wasn't put to death. Because uh, David factored large in things. But it wasn't because of David personally that God didn't put him to death. Because of the bigger picture that God was pursuing of redemption. In spite of David, God's going to continue to work. But one of the things that God said is that the sword is not going to depart from your heart, King David. I'm sorry, not going to depart from your family. And so here in 2 Samuel 15, we're going to read about the sword not departing. That as a result of David's sin previously, God is bringing this division in the nation and this sword to David's very own household. Now remember the people doing this weren't nice people. Absalom was a wicked son. Absalom was a man who worked and calculated to steal the hearts of the people of Israel for months and months and months. This was planned. This was purposed. 2 Samuel 15, 13, and there came a messenger of David. That, oh, by the way, there was this uprising, and David is now having to leave the city. And David doesn't know who to believe. He doesn't know who was against him and who wasn't. Verse 13, and there came a message to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. They, they're all, everybody's following Absalom, your son. And David said unto all his servants that were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee. 
for else none of us shall escape from Absalom. Make speed to depart, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down evil upon us and smite the city with the edge of the sword. So David said, rather than have Absalom come with his armies and destroy the city, we're going to go out of the city so the people don't get destroyed. And the king's servants said unto the king, behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord, the king shall choose. And the king went forth and all his household after him. And the king left 10 women that were his concubines to keep the house. And the king went forth and all the people after him. And they tarried in Beth Merhoch. And all his servants passed on beside him and all the Carathites and all the Pelathites and all the Gittites, 600 men that came after him from Gath passed on before the king. So here's the king fleeing Jerusalem. And he's only got a few hundred people with him against these massive armies coming against the city. That is the setting of this psalm. It's important to understand that setting. All this opposition that's real, and as I say, 14 psalms are dedicated to this period of David's life. It was a big issue. It was heartbreaking, heart-wrenching in, from, in every way. But I want to read and just remind us that, you know, we don't get out of this. Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God. that You may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Wherefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your, <clears throat> your loins, um, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the, prepper, with the gospel of peace with all taking up the shield of faith, whereof you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all times in the spirit and watching thereunto in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And pray on my, my behalf that utterance may be given unto me in opening my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And I'm reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, very apropos to what's happening in Africa. 10.3, for <clears throat> though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are mighty before God to the casting down of strongholds casting down imaginations and every high thing that is exalted against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought, and that's not our personal thought, this is not about bringing our own mind into captivity, but every thought, every philosophical perspective, every worldview into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So we have a warfare. But in this warfare that as we've read in these passages, primarily spiritual, here in chapter 11, verse 23 of 2 Corinthians, are they ministers of Christ? There's a lot of false teachers or confused teachers at Corinth. <clears throat> Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as somebody who's a little crazy. I more. In labors more abundantly. In prisons more abundantly. In stripes above measure. In deaths often. 
Of the Jews, five times that I received 40 stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of, of rivers, in perils of robbers. I was thinking about that as we read about our brother Golo Faustin, who was beaten close to death oh, as they, he and Andre were bringing the gospel to a village in the CAR. You all, if you haven't read that, you should, you should uh, read that and we pray for him. This just happened yesterday. He's in the hospital. Opposition to the gospel is significant. In perils from my countrymen, in perils from the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in labor and travail, in watching often, in hunger often, in thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness, and so on. Opposition in our lives. And the book of Revelation, just such an awesome book. I always try to refer to it. I always try to get all of you to see that this book is so relevant right now to everything in our lives. Just in chapter 12, Satan is cast down. Verse 7, and there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels going forth to war with a dragon, and the dragon warred with his angels, and they prevailed not, neither was there any place found anymore in heaven for the dragon. And the great dragon was cast down, the old serpent that is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, and he was cast down to earth, and his angels were cast down with him. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they loved not their life even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and ye that dwell therein. Woe to the earth and for the sea, because the devil has gone down unto you, having great wrath, knowing that he has but a little time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast down to the earth, he persecuted the woman that brought forth the man-child. That happened 2,000 years ago. That's not something yet to happen. 2,000 years ago, Satan was cast out of his dominion over the earth. And he's on the earth now, and he's smoking mad. And he is out to get every one of us. So these are just a few of the passages in the New Testament that speak to us that David's circumstance is not unique to David. David's circumstance is the experience of every true believer in this world. We have a warfare. And Satan brings that warfare right into our own minds, right into our own hearts. He brings it into our families. He'll bring it into our work. He'll bring it just, just because we breathe, just because we exist. He hates us. There will be enemies that come against us. And so in light of that, that the circumstance of David and our circumstance are at times similar. Like David, we have to find ourselves calling out to the Lord for forgiveness. This psalm is relevant. And so I want to go through this psalm with a series of questions. Psalm 3, verse 1, Lord, how are my adversaries increased? Many are they that rise up against me. And this is how I go about reading the Psalms, by the way. And I ask myself, okay, what is David's circumstance? He's, he's here, he's here de declaring something. So let me sit down and, and, 
and think, gosh, Lord, what is he saying? How does this speak to me? How does this relate to me? I read the Psalms personally, of course. Look what he's saying. His adversaries are increased. An adversary is someone who's against you. The adversary of the devil has gone down to earth having great wrath. He is against you. He is against me. And people who are under the sway of Satan will be against you. And they will be against me. We could throw in Romans 7, a dose of that. One of the people against us is our own heart. Satan will accuse. What is his operations? He's an adversary. And it just seems sometimes in our lives, he has a little bit more time to spend on our, our case than at other times. And in those cases, he just comes and he throws wet blankets on us. He throws discouragement on us. He dims our mind to the things of God. And sometimes we're easy targets because we have not been pursuing the Lord as we ought. Around us, he'll stir up people to misinterpret us. He'll stir up people to judge us. He'll stir up people to have attitudes and perspectives toward us that are just not true. They are invalid, but that's what people will do. People are sinners. All people are sinners. And this is what will happen. See here, David, he had a whole lot of people that were against him. Many there were that rose up against him. Everybody was against him except for a few hundred people. And you will come to times in your life when you feel like everything and everybody is against you. How are your adversaries increased? No matter what you do, there's Satan accusing you and you can't shake it. There's people around you misinterpreting you. They, they think that you're just spaced out where you, instead you've got this internal war you're dealing with and you're just trying to be normal in the face of it and they're misinterpreting you. People around you judging you. And the loyalty that people you thought had toward you is just evaporates at every level. Friends, family, acquaintances, people you work with, people you hang with. That's what's going on in David's life. His adversaries are increased. They rise up against him. They aren't just neutral to David. They're against him. And your life will more or less be a picture of that. See, there's an idea among at least older Christians, Christians from a bygone age, that a Christian who's walking with God is just going to be a peaceable person, is going to be just calm and you know, just talk to everybody and be really nice. And I'm just like, that's not the picture I get in the New Testament. Yeah, we need to be nice. But we have to be nice in a very difficult, challenging, and uproarious world. People are not going to be nice back. People are not going to interpret us properly. We bring the gospel and instead of getting a positive response, we get opposition. Whether it's to a family member, whether it's to an acquaintance, whether it's to someone you've just met, but you feel like you're supposed to do it. So the old idea was that if you gave the gospel right, you'll get this peaceable response and they'll agree with you. Well, the biblical picture is you, you bring God to challenge people's lives. 
And for the most part, you're going to get a sinful response. You're going to get Satan energizing a response that you don't like. What is the book of Acts? Paul going from city to city. Some believed, but most ended up opposing. So whether it's our own personal life, whether it's our labors in the gospel, whether it's our prayer life, I mean, everything's fine until you start to pray. And then what happens? Boy, everything, every idea starts floating into your head, doesn't it? You almost got to sit there and wrestle your own mind to just to a state of being able to focus on the Lord. In David's case, all of these people were rising up against him. Most of the people were rising up against him. Later on, he's going to say 10,000s are against me. We have adversaries. David had adversaries. David's circumstance, like ours, is full of adversaries. In verse 2, what are these people saying? They're not, how are they rising up against him? Well, they're coming, you know, in a military fashion, some of them, but the, probably the hardest thing, the thing that David enumerates more than they all, many are they, verse 2, that say of my soul, there's no help for him in God. What are you doing trying to hang out with God? Now, who does that sound like? Who's the one who brings this accusation the most in our lives? In David's life, it was all these people around him. And by the way, one of the great things that if there is anything positive about what America is going through, as we see the Marxists trying to take over our country, and they are. Right now, it looks like they're succeeding, but let the last chapter be written. But you see their intrigues, you see their lies, you see their misrepresentations everywhere. And they do it with a smile, and they do it with such facile, and they do it with such finesse. Right? They get up and they'll call, uh, you know, a bill in Congress exactly the opposite of what it is. They'll get up and just lie through their teeth. And you're sitting there just going, how can you do that? How can you even go to sleep at night? Are you kidding me? CRT is not a racist thing. I mean, you just, you watch the news, you see it all. Calling good evil and evil good. And that is what was going on in David's life. So, one of the great things about everything that's gone on since uh, a certain president was elected is you see very clearly what goes on in the Psalms. Here's how they operate. They've, the wicked have always operated this way. And this is what David is facing down here. This opposition where they say to David, they say to his soul, they say it in such a way as it's just a barbed arrow. There's no help for him in God. We can easily knock out David now because God is against him. That Bathsheba Uriah thing, God's against him. Satan's going to come into your life and he's going to point out all your sins. Well, not all. That would take too long. He's going to point out sins in your life and accuse you of them again, even though you have dealt with them. And he's going to bring accusation. He not only does it before God, but Jesus answers him as our great high priest, as our great lawyer, our advocate. But what about us? When Satan's throwing that fairy dust on your brain and whispering into your own ear that there's no hope for you in God. 
saying it with such power that it just sinks in and it's just a big, this arrow, you just can't pull it out. Depression sets in. Am I hitting home with folks here, by the way? I don't know about you, but I wrestle with this all the time. Maybe it's just me, but I kind of think that we all have to deal with this. David's always dealing with this in the Psalms. It's an experience that as Christians we're going to have. Real Christians will go through periods of doubt. Because Satan, the adversary, comes and accuses us to the bone. He says to our soul, there's no hope for you in God. So that's what you're going to hear. And of course, the world says there is no God altogether, or they have some pathetic version of God who can't help a fly. Some God who's distant or some God who's just, just mushy love, whatever, whatever version of love they have, they say God's that. There's no hope if, if God's that. So Satan just throws this wicked blanket on us, doubt, accusation, guilt. So when the Holy Spirit comes to deal with sin in our lives, he convicts and leads us to repentance. When Satan comes, he accuses and leads us to depression. You can always tell who's talking to you about your sin. And by the way, I I've, don't always, can always get my brain together to do this or my soul together to do this. When Satan starts accusing me of sin, I start saying, <coughs> that's true. Start agreeing with Satan. I mean, I'm, I'm a dirtball sinner. You all do. Just start agreeing with him and say, oh, by the way, you left this one out. And you left this out. And it's worse than you're even telling me. The lie, Satan, is not that I'm a sinner, but that there's no hope for me in God. That's the lie. My hope is in God. And that's where David turns in the face of his enemies saying, there's no hope for you in God. He says, but you, O Lord, you are a shield about me. You're the glory and the lifter of my head. They say there's no hope for me in you, but who are you, O Lord? You are my shield. You are around about me like a shield. You are the one who protects me. Many enemies rising up, but you will keep me. You will protect me. I am safe with you and you are my glory. Whatever the world thinks of me, whatever lies are being spread, whatever misinformation is being put out there, whatever manipulations are being made, whatever rumors are being told, whatever passive-aggressive pressures are being put on you, Lord, you're my glory. Not them. What they think about me matters little. What you think about me matters all. And Lord Jesus, you died for me and you rose for me and my sins are forgiven. If they weren't, you would still be in the grave. But you're not. And you are for me. In your spiritual warfare, in your war and opposition in this world, God is not against you. See, Satan wants to get you all guilted up so that you approach all this opposition with a sense of, yeah, that's what I deserve. Oh, I'm just awful. I'm just horrible. There's no hope for me in God. See, he wants you to tell yourself that. He wants you to get you doing his dirty work. 
And David says, no, that's not where I'm going. Yep, I sinned. I sinned grievously. And part of what's happening in my life is the result of my sin. But God is still my shield. And he is my glory. And he is the lifter of my head. I will have confidence in God according to his word. I'm not going to worry about feelings because feelings just aren't helping me right now. What's helping me is a confidence in God who is faithful and who has chosen me and who's given me promises. And he gave me those promises knowing everything that I would do and be. Our sin is not taking God by surprise. Our circumstances is not taking God by surprise. So what is David going to do? Is he going to go over here and start taking up the devil's song sheet? Or is he going to go over here and start saying, I'm going to cry unto the Lord with my voice. I'm going to lift up my voice. I'm going to pray. By the way, all throughout the Psalms, are prayers just kind of internal? Oh, Lord, you know, I feel this. I think that. I mean, those are good things. But all the time, the psalmist is saying, I'm crying to the Lord with my voice. Well, how and why is he doing that? He's doing that because he's getting somewhere and he's praying to the Lord and he's crying with his voice. Every now and then when you're crying with your voice to God, Satan says, what are you even talking about? You're talking into the air. <laughs> Again, I don't know if you get that. I do. Satan just loves to twist every little thing he can. We cry to the Lord with our voice because that's what we're supposed to do. With our whole humanity, we pray to the Lord and that means our voice. We cry to the Lord. We cry, we cry out, we call upon the Lord. We say to him, Lord, we need you. We depend on you. You are our help. <coughs> Excuse me, you are our shield. And he answers me out of his holy hill. <coughs> now in David's day, in time of this psalm, the holy hill was Jerusalem that had some hills and one of the hills was Zion. And that's that holy hill. There's Mount Moriah and there's Mount Zion and the king's house was on Zion. But the whole thing is where God dwells because God chose to make that at this time his symbolic place of dwelling. Where's the holy hill now? In David's time, he could point to a physical city and say Jerusalem, Zion, Moriah, the holy hill of God. But where's the holy hill we cry to? Hebrews chapter 12 helps us here, doesn't it? For you have not come unto a mountain that might be touched, and that burned with fire, and so on and so forth. But you have come unto Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels, the general assembly and the church of the firstborn that are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all to the blood that speaks better things than Abel. These are the things that we come on to. This is the Mount Zion for us. And if you even want a bigger picture, go to Revelation chapter four and five. If you want to know where you're praying and that when you pray, who are you addressing? Get a good picture of Revelation four and five. That is the Mount Zion that answers to the symbolic Zion in the Old Testament. It is the Zion of God. It is the Zion of heaven. It is the place where God personally dwells and all of the angels are round about his throne and there are the four and twenty elders falling down before the throne and they have these golden bowls and what are in the golden bowls? Prayers of the saints. That's where your prayers are. He answers me out of his holy hill. 
He answers me out of that place where he is king and rules over all, where his purposes will be accomplished. And the God of light and love who has chosen me in Christ before the foundation of the world, before any of this was ever set in motion, that is the place from which he answers me. So whose song sheet are you going to sing off of in your life? Satan's or God's? David says, I'm taking God's song sheet. I'm going to cry unto the Lord with my voice. He's going to answer me out of his holy hill. That place where all is calm and peace. And as a result of that five and six, hey, once I laid my situation before the Lord, once I moved myself to truly be confident in God and to stop being shaken and distressed. And remember, his own son was coming after him. A grievous family betrayal. Later on, when they have to bring the news to David that Absalom was killed, he wept and wept and wept. And finally, one of his generals had to come to him and say, David, you know, if we didn't know better, we were thinking you would have rather us had been killed than Absalom had been killed because David was so grieved over his son who had rebelled against him who had brought an entire nation against him to kill him. We read about those 10 concubines. He had, his own son took those concubines and, and laid with them on the roof of the house in front of the whole entire city. Talk about humiliation. Done all these God-awful things. This is a public spectacle. A public betrayal. And it didn't mean David wasn't broken in heart, but he had to rise above that and realize there's bigger things, which he'll talk about in a moment. But when it comes to the enemies and the opposition and all of that, he said, I lay me down and slept. I awake for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of the people. Man, he had a ton of enemies that have set themselves against me all around. I'm encircled. This isn't just someone just in front of me and everything else over here is nice and peaceful. I'm encircled with enemies. Ever wonder you read like Paul's letters. He starts out, Paul, I'm an apostle, this, that, and the other to you who are believers in Christ. And then what does he say? Always grace to you and peace. Does that sound like what David's talking about here? Peace. Not because his enemies had ceased, but because he had brought his case before the Lord who sits on that mighty throne and rules the universe. And he knew that God was for him and it wasn't fun, but he still could have peace and confidence. In verse seven, what does David pray for? Lord, give victory. Save me out of this circumstance. It's bigger than I am. Rise up, O oh Lord. It seems like you're, you're not paying attention. You're not hearing. You're not listening. Rise up. Do something. Smite all my enemies on the cheekbone. Now, think about that in battle. This isn't the, you know, shoot from 50 yards away. This is, you got a sword. He has a sword. You have a helmet. He has a helmet. You have clanking around in this mail and all this other stuff to protect you. So does he. 
And he says, God, take my sword and smash them right here. The cheekbone. That sort of instant death. Kind of gory, right? Well, that's the world he lived in. Lord, give me victory. When it comes to Satan accusing us and dragging us over into his choir to be against God, against yourself, you say, Lord, arise, smash my enemies on the cheekbone. And you do that through some of the things we read, faith, hope, prayer. Break the teeth of the wicked again. (sighs) Teeth flying everywhere. Pretty graphic, isn't it? David wants victory and he wants real victory. He wants victory that brings to the forces of darkness devastation. And that's how we should be praying. Renewal ministries, it's a warfare when we go there, as Kim was pointing out and Debbie has been talking about. It's a warfare. Lord, push back the powers of darkness. There's things going on in our lives. Our children, Satan's going to grab at our children, pull at our heartstrings. That's the easiest way for him to get to us. He's going to grab at our marriage. He's going to pull at us. He's going to do all these things. Lord, Satan is not a nice guy. Push him back. Smite the forces of darkness on their cheekbones and knock their teeth out. Real warfare, victory, praying. Pentecostals have a few things right. Now, how they go about it and start talking about all this other craziness. No, no, no. But at least this basic spiritual warfare that we engage in. And then David turns, salvation belongs unto the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. And this is the thing probably most important in our life. At the end of this all, with the rebellion of his own son, the betrayal of his own family, the betrayal of many that had been around him, You can read about it in some of the other Psalms that talk about this period, Doeg, the Edomite, all these things that he talks about, his own familiar friend, all this stuff going on in this time in his life. Where's David's heart? First of all, he knows where victory comes from. It doesn't come from his own surmisings, his own manipulations, his own mechanics. I mean, we plan our ways, but the Lord directs our steps. And we need to fight a spiritual warfare, but the Lord gives victory. We can't do this on our own. But secondly, look at this last statement. Your blessing be upon your people. In the end, when David lands on his feet, when he surveys all the enemies encircled around him, when he prays to the Lord on his holy hill in heaven that the earthly Zion was but a symbol of, when he expresses all of his confidence When he realizes, yes, he's personally involved in this, people are personally against him, they're saying to him he has no hope in God, but David's going to stand otherwise and determine things otherwise. When all is said and done and he lands on his feet, where does he land? Is this about King David and his own personal life? Is that what it is? Does David say, oh Lord, you delivered me. Thankfully, man, I can get back to, you know, having my servants serve me and having a great day going up and doing a bunch of kingly things. Is that that what David cares about? What does he care about here? When he lands on his feet, his heart is invested not in himself, but in God and his kingdom and all of the people of God who are associated with God 
whom God loves. And so for all your spiritual warfare and for all your battles, whether it's you know, Satan and his minions battling you in this spiritual, intangible world, whether it's people who are doing Satan's bidding, attacking you in this real and present world, when you finally get yourself together and you land on your feet, where is your heart? Is it about your own personal victories? Is it about your own personal concerns? Or is it about the bigger picture of the kingdom of God, of which you are a privileged Is your heart going out to Golo Faustin? Are we going to be more engaged that, yes, in perils of robbers? That's a very real thing. It happened in CAR. Are you going to be engaged in that? Are you going to be God-centered or are you going to be self-centered? See, one of the things, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, the Christian life that Satan wants you to get involved in all terminates on you. And it's about your personal survival instead of the Christian life that God talks about and that David talks about that is God-centered and other people-centered. You got to love your, your neighbor as yourself, yes, but you got to love your neighbor. You have this bigger awareness of the kingdom of God and people being saved. Because in the end, we don't have God smiting physical people with physical swords. What we prefer is this. Lord, smite my enemy on the cheekbone who's sitting here doing all these rumors about me. Smite them by saving them from their sin. Take them out of the power of darkness and bring them to your throne of grace. So here's David's little psalm. Interesting that it's the first psalm. We see the big picture in Psalm 1, hey, you know, you gotta, there's right and wrong. There's the righteous and the wicked. That defines the human race. If you're going to appreciate any of these psalms, the first psalm frames it for us. You delight in the law of the Lord, and the wicked are not going to stand in the, <clears throat> in the council or in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. Righteousness is what the kingdom of God is brought about, not feelings and emotion righteousness. Psalm 1. Psalm 2, the victory of the Messiah over the entire world. And then what's the next psalm? David having to deal with adversaries and how he manages his own soul and his own confidence in the midst of it. Very interesting that this is the first psalm that really becomes personalized in the Bible. Well, I hope that encourages you and Pray to the Lord and ask him to do this very thing. Heavenly Father, we think of uh, King David. He's such an example to us in many things, a warning in a few things. Lord, thank you for these psalms that uh, speak of the inwardness of your grace in a person's heart and the fact that almost every psalm, there's only five or six that don't have warfare as their theme. Lord, we live in a real world. It is a battle. It is a labor. Lord, we just pray that psalms like this would speak to our hearts and encourage us in this warfare that we are in. And as Satan seeks to isolate us and get us focused on ourselves and get us all worried about our own little problems, Lord, you will break us out of that and just fill us with this sense that King David has in the end. It is about you, O Lord, our God, and about your glory. And just what a blessing that you have made us a part of it. That's what gives us meaning and significance. We're not shut into our own selfishness, our own... Uh, Lord, everything turning on ourselves like some black hole. 
But Lord, uh, we are part of your galaxy where these stars are spread out everywhere. And we're one of them and get to be part of it. We thank you for it. Pray, Lord, Lord, you would give us all the good sense every day as Satan has his little machinations against us, his little strategies, his stratagems, as it says in the Greek, Lord, that, um, that uh, we would know his strategies and like David, we're not going to listen to him. He's going to tell us the worst, but Lord, we need to stand firm in the best, that you are for us, that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, that his blood cleanses us from all sin, and that he has made us to be a kingdom and priests unto you. Um, Lord, I just thank you for my brothers and sisters and pray that we, you would be with us this week, you would bless them. And Lord, we ask for tons of opportunities to talk to people about you. And Lord, that we may be ready that uh, right out of nowhere, you may bring us to be able to, to share the gospel with someone. And Lord, that we'll have the good sense to experience it and have the boldness to turn conversations toward you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.